The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about yard actions that people can take to lessen the amount of dirty water coming off of their yard. And we're also going to talk about ocean planning. And my guests are Elise Zavlatuglu. Did I say it right, Elise? Zavlatuglu. Zavlatuglu. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I always blow it right there. Hello, Elise. Hello. And uh, Sarah Trimble. Yep. Hi. Hi, Sarah. So Elise and Sarah are uh, summer interns at Ocean River Institute. Um, Elise is at Northeastern and going back to school. And uh, Sarah is at Suffolk University. And then the ringer in the corner over here with me is Amy Bushman from uh, Conservation Law Foundation. Hello, Amy. Hello. Excited to be here. So Amy's going to talk with us about ocean planning. But first, um, I'd like to talk with Elise and Sarah about this. Uh, we just had a weekend at the Greenfest in Boston City Plaza. We were there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, of course, some thought went into this when we were going to set up a table and stuff. Elise, what do we do to get ready for this? Yeah, so when we were preparing for Green Fest, we wanted to put together an activity um, that would be interactive for the guests to be able to engage with us and learn a little bit more about um, responsible lawn stewardship. So we came up with a board that we put on an easel, um, and we made up a sign that said top 10 actions for clean waters, and we had people rank um, their top 10 actions for clean waters um, and what they thought um, was the best things to do to keep um, their lawns healthy, but their waters clean. Um, so how do we come up with 10 actions? So we spent the week before brainstorming. Um, we sat together as a team and kind of threw some ideas around. Um, and we came up with something as simple as having a container to throw out your cigarette butts to something maybe less people will think about, which is leaving grass clippings on lawns to not pouring chemicals down the drain. So there's really a lot of different ways that you can help keep waters clean. Um, it was good that we spent, you know, a few days figuring it out, but yeah. the first day it's like, oh, yeah, I was thought of like five things, you know, and then... Over the next two days, uh, you each, we all had different ideas to add to it and stuff. Yeah. And then I think we had actually 12 things, and we decided to narrow it. Or we combined, and, and somehow we got it easily to 10. Uh, but we brought some blanks, 
but they never, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in addition to the board, we had a little craft. Um, we cut out um, fish heads and tails with <laughs> construction paper um, and had pre-cut um, fish bone straws and bead vertebrae so that kids could, kids and adults and whoever wanted their own fish could um, put together their own personal um, fish um, to enjoy and have around. And why are we giving them dead fish with their ribs showing out like this? Um, well, our original, we originally were talking about um, creating 16 dead fish for the 16 dead fish found on Salmon's Shores, um, which is talked about in another podcast, but um, just to kind of I well, guess. that's it. The 16 striped bass that died yeah. motivated Falmouth to go from five pounds of fertilizer a year to one pound. And so that was the first action they did for clean yards or clean water or cleaner water off the yards to reduce the outwash of um, nitrogen-rich water from too much fertilizer. So that's why we were having kids make dead fish. It looks kind of funny, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then you were good to cut out the letters. Yes, um, I put my exacto knife to <laughs> and cut out letters, and we also cut out wildlife. And um, we had been communicating with garden clubs throughout this whole month in Florida about um, native plant species that they thought were good um, to plant in a buffer zone between um, the shoreline and people's lawns, so they gave us some suggestions that are specific to Florida um, about um, different vegetation to plant. They suggested mondo grass and lyriok, another um, type of grass um, with purple flowers on it, um, so we put those on the board as well and created kind of a graphic of what a responsible one should Right. We had their own buffer zone put in yeah. there. And thanks to the Temple Terrace Garden Club of Florida, in Florida, that sent us these two types of uh, kind of, uh, of grasses, I guess. But they're just beautiful wild plant, uh, beautiful plants that you can uh, uh, put between your lawn and the, um, and the shore so that it'll pick up some of the uh, nutrient-rich water is coming off your lawn before it gets to the water. That was cool. So, Sarah, there we were. We got set up. We, we brought everything into the hot plaza. That first day was pretty hot. Yeah, it was pretty hot on Friday, but overall it was beautiful weather all weekend. And the Boston Green Fest was a hit. Um, I was so glad that Elise and I prepared all weekend, cutting out all the fish heads and all the materials because that first day, we made a lot of dead fish. The kids loved it. Um, so it was a pipe cleaner, and then you alternate with straws and beads uh, for the vertebrae and for the ribs. And uh, while the kids were making the fish, it gave us an opportunity to talk to the parents and educate them about the situation that was going on in Falmouth and currently in Florida, and it gave the parents a chance to sign our petition to Governor Baker. Thank goodness Tiana was there helping us. Yes. <laughs> because from UMass... Um, because you, you were gone for a while, and I found myself trying to clip, uh, hole punch these straws. Oh, my gosh. The hole punching the straws, I should have been working out all week. <laughs> <laughs> it was so difficult. Just a simple one-hole hole puncher and trying to hole punch a straw, I was, my hand was sore all weekend. <laughs> and you had to hit it right on center or yeah, otherwise the loop would not be through the middle, and it would 
the bones would fall off the vertebrae oh, and pipe yeah. cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so that was a difficult task. But <laughs> You guys were up for it, and we succeeded because I've got pictures here. You can see pictures on our website um, on the blog posting at www.oceanriver.org. If you go to our homepage at the top, Banner there, it says blogs, hit on the blog and you'll see a list of blogs and you can tell which one has the poster board in it and, and uh, the 10 top yard actions that we can take for clean water. So that was the fun thing was the, the board you set up, we had in front there mm-hmm. and so um, we could ask people to, um, um, so we, we had taken the 10 things and put them on uh, their own separate piece of paper so people could rearrange and you'd back reinforced it with some colored paper in the back. Mm-hmm. And um, and then um, I put across the top as number one, let's not fertilize in the summertime because that's where they did in Falmouth and that's what we want to do uh, to not have algae blooming in the summertime because that's when the daylight's the longest and the water's the warmest and so the algae blooms the most then. And so we don't want, people can fertilize in the spring or fall, it won't hurt the ocean life and waterways fresh water as well, um, as it does in the summertime. So that was our number one thing at the top of the board. And then we turned to people and said, from these ones tacked on the bottom, uh, which one do you think is number two uh, and number three? And so uh, mostly it was couples. Occasionally it would be a bigger family, um, and occasionally it was a single person. And they, I was impressed. They put a lot of thought into what the order that they put things in, and they would say, yeah. And so um, then we, we took a – and people wanted to take a picture of themselves. So we took a picture of people. Often the children would have their fish, <laughs> and they'd hold their fish up, and they'd have their arrangement, and they're saying, yeah, this is our way of doing it. Of course, it's all right answers because mm-hmm. um, they're all good things to do. Uh, it's just what's interesting is how people prioritize. And so we took the pictures home and uh, – studied the results, you know, we did analysis <laughs> of the results, which meant that Sarah learned how to enlarge the photographs so you could make out what the names, what the wording was, and we scored them. Mm-hmm. So we gave high points to first choice and low points to last choice and tallied up the points, and we had a tie. Yeah, the number two choice was a tie between do not pour chemicals in storm drains and don't use or limit use of pesticides was a tie for the second spot. Yeah, so people really understood you don't want to pollute, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so we had, yeah, that was surprising. And what else was surprising? Another thing that was super surprising was uh, what came in 10th at the bottom of the list was leave grass clippings on lawns. A lot of people were very surprised to hear that they don't have to... Uh, Break it up after they mow. One woman told me that her son will be super thrilled to hear that he doesn't have to waste any more time raking after he mows the lawn. Because leaving the grass clippings on the lawn um, will help feed the soil and it helps uh, retain moisture in the lawn. Yeah, that was funny. Cause some people put it way <laughs> high up and some people way down low. Yeah. And the down lows came out, came out you know, on top. Mm-hmm. Um, also at the bottom was um, the idea of putting containers out for uh, with sand in them for cigarette butts. Uh, this is not really something people do in their yards, but it's uh, we had this problem with our sunshine with Nancy Beaver's Sunshine Wildlife Program in Stewart, Florida, where um, she would operate her boat as a ferry, k- taking people to and fro the Port Salerno Seafood Festival. 
So every year she would ask the festival people, would you please put out these containers with sand so the people who are buying all this delicious seafood who have to smoke will put their cigarette butts in them. And they never do. And as a result, Captain Nan sees the waters just floating with these butts when a simple thing as just making it easy for people, rather than ragging on people for not pocketing their burning cigarette butts, you know, um, we just have to make it easy for them. So people at this clean at our um, Green Fest were saying, well, that doesn't really apply to me. So they, um, many of them would say, okay, that's when it's going to be at the bottom. And then they fill kind of upwards. Although, once or twice, um, people put it way up high, mm-hmm. which, again, I think was because um, they, people really don't want to pollute. And so the obvious pollution things were, were, number, were at the top. And then lower in the middle were things to save water. What were some of the things we, ways we had to save water coming off your lawn? So um, installing rain barrels for water in your garden. So just throw a barrel out there, collect the rainwater, and then instead of using your hose, just use that water. For your garden, we also had wash your car with a bucket and sponge instead of, I know when I used to wash my car, I would just constantly have the hose going and it just goes, it's just a huge waste of water. So just turn that hose off and wash your car with a bucket and sponge instead. Uh, we had uh, use a brush to sweep your driveway off and not a hose. Uh, plant native plants that are less thirsty for water. So like we said, we had all those recommendations from the garden clubs in Florida. And if you contact your local garden clubs, they will probably give you a recommendation on what are some good native plants. We also have pick up plastics on shorelines and in water. Yeah, so those were in the middle pretty much. So people were really wise. They really care about the waterways. And so the obvious pollution things they put at the top, and then they're reducing water um, that they put down in the middle uh, and our whole point is to modify people's behaviors, not to call for complete change. So um, some people said and correctly pointed out that taking your car to a car wash is going to be less polluting than using a soap in a bucket because a car wash will treat their water before it leaves the car wash or they'll put it into the drain or something, whereas soapy water from a bucket and sponge might end up in your waterways. However, the people who like to clean their cars, wash their cars every day, once a week, whatever the day it um, are not apt to suddenly just change their behavior and take it to a car wash just because uh, it's better for the environment because that's a tradition. So we tried to find things that were easy for people to modify uh, their behaviors to do. And what people love seeing is seeing what they're already doing. You know, oh, yeah, we, we are putting out a barrel for the water or... Um, yeah, we do like to plant native plants, and so that's, that was really good. Um, yeah, so it was really an effective way to get across uh, the, you know, what people, simple things people can do. And, and, of course, you know, we have the pollution problems on this side, and, and in Florida, we've been, and, and then we found terrific, terrible algal blooms where it was just blocks of mats of, of gray matted, you know, algae, um, what were they were comparing, uh, comparing, comparing it to? Guacamole in the Guacamole water. Guacamole in the yeah, water. Yeah, we had printed yeah. out some of the photos. I know one particular photo that the New York Times had put up of the boat and then all the algae. People were asking me if that photo was real. They were like, that's not real. They were like, that's Photoshop just because the colors are so fluorescent. Yeah. They were like, where's the water? And I'm like, that is the water. <laughs> it's under, I was like, you can't see the water. <laughs> it's yeah. bright green. So many people were just like, that's Photoshop. That's not real. 
I was like, this was taken less than a month ago. <laughs> yeah, this was in July. Yeah, so it was and, very uh, shocking. <laughs> the problem there was that they have all this algae growing in Lake Okeechobee, and uh, they uh, hold the water back to keep the lake level up, um, and with the summer rains, it was going to top over the top of the dams, so they had to release, and they release from the bottom so they don't break the top of the dam, and that's where all the mucking is, the salt is incredibly rich muck and algae um, from the surface somehow went down the St. Lucie River into Palm Beach County and just totally choked up the waterway. Uh, and then, um, Elise, you were researching some other states, right? And you found some problems? Yeah. Um, so we made up some stories. We didn't make them up. <laughs> <laughs> research. We researched some stories and made up some handouts of um, different events in different states. Um, we have New York. Well, one of the states that, that one of the states was New York. Yeah. Um, one of the states was New York. We did New Jersey, um, and we talked about different things in each of them. Some states have been more proactive than others in terms of their legislation. So for New Jersey, for instance, we wrote about their um, recent um, one or um, fertilizer um, laws that were passed in um, a few years ago. And right, more regulations to lessen. Yeah. Because they're all having these problems of choking algae. Yeah. And it's not just the ocean ones, right? It's fresh yeah. water. So um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to talk more um, about uh, what we can do in our yards to reduce harmful algal blooms in our waterways. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforocean.com. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. I've been talking with Elise and Sarah about uh, Ocean River Institute at Boston's Green Fest uh, in August weekend, I guess. Uh, it was really hot one day, and then the third day, I found it was a beautiful day, but I didn't have to drink so much because it wasn't so, so hot and painful. But we took photographs, and if you'd like to see photographs of um, people with their top 10 yard actions and people with, and children with their dead fish, uh, then uh, visit um, www.oceanriver.org. And if you hit on the blog postings, you'll see which blog is that. Uh, if you Facebook us, Ocean River Institute, you can see a picture of Elise and uh, Sarah cutting out the papers and uh, preparing the, the fish heads and uh, getting assemblage together for uh, Boston Green Fest. Also with me is Amy Bushman. Hello there. Hi, Amy. So um, we've been working together for some time now about the national ocean policy. What, what is that? Yeah, so the national ocean policy is essentially the result of an executive order by President Obama in July of 2010. Um, right in the early stages of his presidency. And so uh, the National Ocean Policy is this incredible document that basically calls for better stewardship um, for America's oceans and better decisions in ocean management. Um, and so... Right, so the declaration by the president was essentially, yep. you know, all your different agencies must work with each other. Exactly. The Coast Guard has to talk to Interior, who has to talk to the Navy, who has to talk to yep. the Army Corps, who has to talk to the Coast Guard, yep. you know, 11 different federal agencies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so uh, this is an historic document, and it comes with a lot of suggestions about how to go about being better stewards. Well, also about the process before you got the document. Right. So um, it's an executive order. Um, so, no, I mean, so... So you name these groups, yep. and then they started 
meetings? Yeah, and so with the National Ocean Policy, I think at the heart of this document is the creation of regional ocean plans. Um, and so uh, these regional ocean plans are the first of their kind in the United States, and uh, the National Ocean Policy basically called for nine in total. Um, and so Nine regions. Nine regions in total, including yep. the Great Lakes. And so uh, New England in the Northeast um, was the first out of the gate. They assembled a, what they're calling a regional planning body, which is equal representation of federal agencies that have a stake in ocean management in the Northeast, um, as well as uh, two representatives each from each state in New England and uh, federally recognized tribes uh, that call this region home as well. And so um, they were the first to do so, and they did that in 2012, and it's been an exciting process. And... Um, in fact, an exciting summer because the draft ocean plan, the first in the nation, was released for public comment this summer, and we're hoping to have and that it. came out of a year of, of meetings. With oh, years, almost about four years. Yeah, of planning. That's and right. So, From the beginning of Obama's uh, tenure, so mm -hmm. he, yeah, and he's been there for it'll be eight years come January. Exactly. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. It was just amazing the way that. You know, Richard Getchell would come down from the Micmac tribe on the Canadian border with Maine, and we learned that the Passamaquoddy guy had a longer drive because the road's worse coming yeah. from where he was on the coast of Maine. Yeah. They'd come to Cambridge for a meeting or Rhode Island for a meeting or yeah. something. It's, it's a remarkable process. It's the first time ever, and I say that with confidence. Um, in the world of ocean management in the United States, that in one room you've had federal agencies sitting with state representatives, also sitting with tribes, having and working together. So you had, you know, Mike Fogarty down in Woods Hole preparing a presentation with Chucky from the Mashpee tribe. And, you know, Chucky is saying, well, the shatter in the river now. And, and uh, Mike is saying, yeah, the population count is this or whatever. You know, the ecosystem, you know, whatever. is just phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And he uh, started off with one meeting four years ago. Uh, in Portland, Maine, and four years later, the amount of work they've been able to accomplish is just mind-blowing. Um, there are a lot of benefits to this regional ocean plan that will just result in, you know, game-changing action for ocean management. I think, personally, my favorite component of this plan is the creation of the Northeast Data Portal. Mm. And so this is an online resource, open, free to the public, um, and agencies at the state and federal level have made commitments to use this data, which is um, vetted by peer review um, and covers literally thousands of data layers for marine life, for important habitats, and for human uses. Uh, and agencies across the board are committing to using this data to ensure that their decisions are based upon the best available science. It just makes a lot of sense. Um, and another really game-changing element of this plan. Let me interrupt. You can't underplay how much work was involved in oh. that because all these different agencies have their own data, yeah. but it's not compatible with the other agencies. Yeah, absolutely. So John Weber and other people, these scientists that they yeah. consulted, had to get it all to, to inter, intermesh, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and I remember there was an activity where each agency was to just draw a map of mm -hmm. what they thought were sensitive and what were less sensitive. And so you end up with multiple maps, and and you know, and that way a developer can look at 
an overlay of those maps and get a sense of... Right, exactly. And so I think we're blessed as a region um, in the sense that we're very data-rich, but I think that also makes it a little bit complicated, right? So which data do you choose for this process to be included in the data portal? And so there's a lot of... The flip side is that the ocean is so vast and constantly changing that there are huge holes in our knowledge, and yet you'd think we know a lot because... The volume of stuff we know is enormous. Exactly. But this is Pascal's paradox, is that it's like knowledge is a sphere. And the more you know, the bigger the sphere, but the more contact with the unknown there is. So the more you know, the more you don't know. And so that's the scary thing with planning, is that they think they know where the fish are, and they might be wrong. So this is why everyone has to be communicating. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, one remarkable thing that has resulted is when you put in and house all the best data within one epicenter, then you actually know what you also don't have. Um, And so this plan is built around this this concept of adaptive management, right? So basically, you know, when you put this plan in motion and it goes through the implementation phase, um, as you go through the motions, as you know better, you do better. As you do better, you improve the plan. That also goes for data. They already have listed extensively in the last chapter of this plan the data gaps that they've already identified and they're currently working to fill. Um, So it's an iterative process, which means this process will only improve over time and data will just keep getting better and better. And that inventory in the data portal will just um, continue to improve. And the collaborative aspect is aspects. It's just fabulous. Uh, we were at one of the hearings where David from um, Mass Fisheries um, was pointing out that he's looking forward to information on scop and squid or something that's coming from his other agency. So he, you know, he's trying to watch all the fish of Massachusetts. And, and because of this regional planning effort, he knew that that information will be coming from his other agency. Otherwise, you just have to go reinvent wheels or remeasure fish or something. And yeah. so it, it's, it's remarkable because uh, the plan is, um, the, the comment period for the plan, which is still technically a quote-unquote draft, um, ended uh, a few weeks back, July 25th, a month ago. Gosh, summer's flown by. Um, and uh, they're working on the final product. So technically, it's not even being implemented, but the data portal is being used by agencies already. Yeah, but tell us about flying by those those sessions for bringing the plan out. I mean, you've been busy this summer. You've been traveling. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, the the regional planning body has really gone above and beyond the call of duty to make sure that every single person in New England, if they want to give a any input or comment on this plan can. And so when the plan was released um, in early summer, they had public hearings in each state, um, at least one, in some states, two or three. And so I made it. I, I was from, I drove from Old Lyme to Old Lyme, all the way up to Rockland, Maine. And um, I only missed two, and one because one was in Ellsworth, Maine, and that was a six-hour drive for me, right. which was a bit of a stretch, and uh, the other one was New Bedford, and I had a dead car battery, and that's why I didn't make Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. convenient compared yeah. to where you had to old Lyme, or yeah, exactly. did you go to Vermont? Uh, they didn't have one in Vermont, yeah. actually. They do have a member from Vermont on the regional planning body. 
Um, but, you yeah, know, all, it's all not a coastal state, so yeah. it hasn't been terribly involved, but nonetheless supportive. Right. So um, trying to hit all of those uh, coastal epicenters where you really are able to get a, um, a diverse swath of stakeholders from fishermen to industry to shipping to, um, you, know, uh, you know, concerned well, conservationists. It was good that Mel Corte from uh, EPA office happened to be summering on Mount Desert for the Els- for the Ellsworth meeting. Yeah, that was, that was convenient. Yeah, that, that, right? yeah, yeah. It worked out. so we had that meeting. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, but it's it's fascinating. That's, it's um it's kind of a neat perspective to have personally because um, you know traveling to each state, seeing yes. um, witnessing these meetings and the comments that come out of them, it's interesting to see the differences in perspective of the clan. Um, you know, all very positive, largely, um, but, you know, some some clarifying questions in terms of, is this process regulatory or not? Is this going to create no-go zones? Is it regulatory? It is not regulatory. And that's, no, it's not. They're, and, they're not making the decisions. They haven't moved the responsibility for decisions from any of the agencies. So all this is is information gathering. And, and communication. Exactly. And, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, pretty explicitly in the National Ocean Policy, um, this, this document states that these regional ocean plans will not be regulatory in nature. They do not create new laws, new regulations. They simply make the decisions and basically the pre-existing regulatory framework how you utilize that, whether you're a state representative or you work for a federal agency, simply by being armed by excellent data and best agency practices, what you do is going to improve and improve over time as this plan gets improved. And so it's, um, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, what I like about the portal is that they, um, they, they clearly indicate these are peer-reviewed papers mm-hmm. that, are, you know, that you can put some weight on. But then people can also comment so a fisherman could say, I don't agree, I saw this happen, and he can submit that comment so that it's in there. So it doesn't have the weight of a peer review, but it, it's in there so people can see mm-hmm. the perception that other people have yeah. of the resource, because that's a big clash is that scientists are seeing one thing and the user is seeing something else, and it's important for the decision maker to see both sides of that and be able to be prepared to respond to the fisherman who says, you didn't do it my way. Why they didn't do it that way is because they had the data and stuff. And, yeah. and vice versa, well, I don't know if the scientists read the comments, but it, but this kind of better communication is really... Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just, you know, a whole new precedent in ocean planning and ocean management. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, you know... And it called for this wonderful communications that happened. So you, Amy, hosted... You know, like lobstermen getting together from um, with the Down East people, and that was interesting. I was on the phone with that group, with that, your group there, and they were saying that they were really carefully interviewing these lobstermen right off of the sensitive ocean area, and then they realized that the local lobstermen, or I don't know if they were lobstermen, the local users were not using that piece, but uh, someone from elsewhere was coming in and fishing that area, and so to get the full picture you really need to take a regional approach. You can't just take a local approach because people move around. Yeah. Just move around. Yeah, exactly. And so um, as part of my role at the Conservation Law Foundation, I also facilitate the New England Ocean Action Network, oh, yes. um, a clever acronym of NEON. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's this 
really wonderful network of organizations and individuals, um, stakeholders who have an interest or stake in improved ocean management in New England. And so that includes you, Rob, and the Ocean River Institute. It also includes... It's inclusive of everybody. Of everybody. And so it's so diverse. I have commercial... Except for government agencies. Yeah, yeah, uh, mostly NGOs. Um, We also have individual fishermen on board as well. Um, And it's an opportunity for these stakeholders to get involved in the regional ocean planning process to provide input um, or to just stay abreast and see how the planning process is going. That's the real key is it's a network. So we don't have to go to all the meetings. Mm -hmm. We can be in touch with the network and hear what's coming up and and know that you're going to speak for us. Yeah. Yeah, you can consider me your uh, regional ocean planning sales associate. (laughs) You're the traveler. You're brought to meetings, (laughs) you know. You put in the road miles. You're a road warrior getting out there. (laughs) Yeah, tough gig, right? You know, going to down east Maine and, you know, eating a lobster roll and getting to take part of this. Oh, I know. We went to Gloucester. Had a good meal there. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, So... What's going to happen? So the plan will be rolled out, yeah. and then the world will change. How? Uh, so we're in the final hour. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, exciting, the, the comment period. Well, what's going to happen after the hour? I mean, So after the hour, what they're shooting for is to basically create the final plan by yeah. the end of September. Yeah. Um, at that point, the regional planning body, which helped draft this document, will formally give the thumbs up to say, we like this, we approve, no more edits needed. From there, they send it to the National Ocean Council, um, which was developed as a result of the National Ocean Policy. Um, The National Ocean Council, which is essentially the White House, um, or is an office of the White House. um, President's administration. Yep. Will uh, review the plan and will hopefully, theoretically, approve it. And then from there, once it's approved, um, it's implemented. Right. Yeah. Because it's, it's not really binding. It's really just guidelines and information yeah. and, and ways that agencies can communicate with one another. Exactly. And so um, once it's implemented, um, these agencies will utilize this plan. They'll essentially operationalize it into daily practice. And so um, it's uh, going to improve any sort of pre-application process for a diversity of, say, aquaculture projects to commercial fishing to offshore wind, shipping, all things in between. How does it help them? So it's a combination of factors. Um, Using the data portal to identify the best places where you will mitigate conflict, where there aren't any sort of uh, uh, stakeholders out there already using that area who would be upset to know. Uh, right. Say an offshore alert stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly, and so from there, once the stakeholders are identified, the various agencies that are ushering along this application process will be able to essentially engage with them early on. Excellent. Exactly. Whereas if you're a year into the permitting process and you have lots of angry people, with you, you don't want surprises once you, you go don't into want it. Surprises. No, you want to know up front what are going to be the obstacles. Yeah. So this lays it out. Here are the potential, you know, obstacles. You're going to have to address these. Mm-hmm before we can proceed. Yeah, it's all about being the old, transparent. Yeah, the old style was that you'd go to each agency, and so you end up going to the agency with least resistance because they were the easiest to go to. And this way, an entrepreneur can see what are the, all the obstacles exactly. and, um, and be prepared to address those 
category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's really valuable for anybody who wants to do anything. Whereas, you know, agencies can also use this portal process to identify which stakeholders are out there. Right, conversely. So the agencies can say, if you want this application approved, you need to host X, Y, and Z meetings with these stakeholders to make sure that everyone's okay with what you're about to do. So it's all about mitigating conflict. It's all about being transparent. It's all about great clients. It's great. Bravo. We're going to be right back after this message. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforocean.com. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're sitting here in Harvard Square third floor at world headquarters of Ocean River Institute, 
Amy Bushman's been good to tell us about the national ocean policy. Um, it's getting to be the end of August, and uh, we're coming toward the end of our internship program. So it's like Tiana left on Wednesday. It's like, oh, no, and, and uh, Elise and Sarah are wrapping up the week. Uh, and it's been really spectacular. I want to thank you guys for your work. But um, so we've got a few minutes. You've done some interesting things before you came to the Ocean River Institute. Um, why don't we start with Elise? Um, because we might go a little longer with you, um, and uh, because you went to India yeah. uh, to learn about uh, and how they were managing climate change. Yes, climate change, science, and policy. Um, so I go to Northeastern University, and um, every summer they have um, several different dialogue programs, is what they call them, and they're basically... Um, five to six week study abroad programs um, and um, you take two classes for eight credits um, and each dialogue has a different topic. So I went to India with um, 30 other students. Um, we traveled to 11 different cities so it was a lot of time spent on the bus. Um, one time our bus was stuck in traffic so it was running to get rickshaws so it was it was an adventure. You rode a rickshaw? Sure. Yes. Um, I actually had to jump into a rickshaw with two very nice old ladies already in it. So I thought, because <laughs> we were going to miss our train to Delhi, and, like, we needed this train because there's either you're getting to Delhi or you're not. So I had to hop in and sit on my friend's lap and just, like, thank these ladies profusely who don't know what I'm saying. So, yeah, um... We traveled to 11 different cities, and um, we took one class was focused on climate change science and one more focused on policy. Um, our professor was Arup Ganguly. Um, he teaches in the Department of Civil Engineering at Northeastern, and he's really great. He has done a lot, and um, before Northeastern, he was doing a lot of policy work. Um, as well, so he has a science background, but he's also really involved in policy, so it was really interesting um, to learn from him and what you learn? Perspective. What's going on with climate change in India? Um, so it's just hot. what are people doing? Or? Um, yeah, so when talking about climate change, we talked a lot about um, chaos, and basically we did some very basic coding, and um, we the graph basically looked... If you aren't familiar with what a chaos graph looks like, it looks kind of similar to how it sounds. It's very messy. <laughs> and basically what we were um, learning there was that mapping climate change is very hard. There are a lot of variables. And if you change yes, one variable by a half percent, it'll change the outcome drastically. So um, it's basically bottom line it's very hard to predict what um, the climate will be like X amount of years from now but um, in terms of policy that doesn't mean that we should just kind of cross our fingers and hope for the best um, we talked a lot about um, what risk is and how it's a mix of hazards um, vulnerabilities and exposure and um, in India right now, India is a very interesting case because it is in some ways a developing country, but in others it's also very developed and it has, India has um, the most of, the most rich people in the world. India has 
a significant percent of those people. I don't know if it's the top 10 or 100 or whatever, but um, there's a lot of um, startups happening. We had um, different speakers come talk to us, one woman, about all the different startups in India. It takes 60 or 90 days to make a startup in India, so there's a lot of um, but at the same time, you have a lot of extreme income inequality, and um, you have to kind of take that into account when considering your hazards yeah. and your risks. So, um, so are they going to modify their behaviors in any way to um, well address we, climate change? Or we kind of focus on climate change science um, on a broader right. level. Um, we actually didn't really discuss the specific politics of India that much, Um, but um, there there are things happening, um, but um, India is one of the regions getting hit the hardest by climate change. Um, This summer was the hottest on record. Um, In Rajasthan, the temperatures got well above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. 120 degrees Fahrenheit? Yes. Yeah. But you see um, people adapt, and this is where they live. It's what they have to live with. So it's pretty amazing Um, just, like, seeing people go about their day in the heat, wearing pants, long sleeves, just just going about. So it's a lot of adaptation. and um, The shade is important. So some of those long clothing are helping to keep you out in the sun. Yeah. So it was definitely um, an eye-opening experience and seeing the effects of climate change somewhere where you can really, really feel it was was pretty incredible. And it's a global problem. So yeah. anything we do here to reduce our carbon footprint will benefit people around the world yeah. because you're reducing the amount of carbon, you know, parts per million yeah. in the atmosphere. And that's what part of the discussion and debate we had is whether India should be allowed to develop kind of without without any regulations like the United States did. We didn't, when we were developing right. back in the 19th, 18th century, we didn't really care about how much CO2 we were releasing. Our industrial revolution was yeah. all about releasing CO2. Yeah. So there's a debate. Is it ethically right to say, no, you can't develop using um, this amount right. of carbon because we need to um, protect the ozone layer, we need to stop global warming. Um, but India has taken the stance that... Um, they are going to do it responsibly, develop responsibly, that we can't afford at this point, whether it's fair or not, to um, develop and um, use as much carbon as um, developed nations today did back when they were having their industrial revolution. So. Yeah, I, and I think there's ways to have industry without so much carbon. So we don't want to slow down. There must be ways that we don't have to slow down industry with, and still yeah. have less um, pollution. Yeah. And uh, that's something that, uh, that's a real job opportunity right there. So we really need opportunities to figure out how to, um, how to be economically well off and also reducing our exhaust and carbon pollution at the same time. So lots of opportunities to make a difference. Yeah. So I look forward to reading about your successes after you graduate <laughs> go on to, the uh, savvy uh, carbon reducer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sarah, you went to far away Ecuador? Yes. So uh, last fall, I studied abroad in Ecuador, and I was living in Quito for about a month, and then I was living on the Galapagos Islands for three months. 
So overall four months, and I took about five classes, I want to say. I took two classes. So the interesting interesting thing was that all the classes are taught in three-week modules, so I'm only taking one class at a time for three weeks. So it was one week of... I had to interrupt because we're really short on time. So what did, what did you find in, in, in uh, the Galapagos, as the issue and the thing, things are being done about it? So one of the main issues on the Galapagos is they were currently working on um, updating the ecosystem-based management plan for there, and they were extending the boundaries, and they were changing the land use. So they changed a lot of the islands so that it's now like scientific research only, and they changed where the tourists are allowed to go. They extended the boundaries and they created stricter regulations on fishing, like near the boundaries. And um, for the why did they have to restrict what where tourists go? Um, because tourists are super damaging to the ecosystem. Really, <laughs> shocker. <laughs> but um, it's just a fine line of trying to um, control like the pristine ecosystem and keeping it pristine. But then their whole economy is based off of tourism. Right. So it's a very fine line, and we had a lot of debates on whether they should be because there were so many hotels being built. Even uh, while I was there, I saw two hotels get put up. So it wasn't just waffle stomping by tourists <laughs> or something. No, it's, it, it, it's all it's, the hotels. Hotel development. Like, all that tourists yeah. 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 So we talked a lot. We debated about whether um, we should be doing more cruise ships or building more hotels, and each has their pros and cons. Like, we were just saying the hotels, like, what do you do with all the waste? And just, like, that's no good for building, and, like, you're taking away land. But then the cruise ships, are taking away money from the Galapagos because it's usually a third party that runs the cruise ships. So the Galapagos are only getting money when they come on and they go to the souvenir shops instead of all the other charges. But then the cruise ships um, are damaging marine life. Um, like a lot of sea turtles get hit by um, a lot of boats. Oh, dear. It, no, it was so sad. Whenever I was snorkeling, like there's not a day that went by that I wouldn't see a sea turtle that had like chips on its shell Yikes. from being run over by boats. It was very miserable. Even all the sea lions, um, you could see like some of them had like chunks missing out. Oh of my them. gosh! And of so, course, if a boat bumps into a coral reef, it takes a long time for the reef yeah. to repair. So even though there aren't many boat strikes of reefs, yeah, they do add up and. Yeah, to show them. It'd be great if the boats would take the garbage from the hotels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make the boats take the garbage. Yeah, that would be great. Actually, the boats do have garbage processing stuff on them now, so oh. that, that could be an option. I don't know about the boats that go to Galapagos. They have to be smaller boats to go there. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are so, smaller. Yeah. Nothing yeah. too big. Uh, wow. Yes, it was definitely the experience of a lifetime. <laughs> and, and now, how might you um, use this experience here or your experience at the Galapagos um, moving forward um, at Suffolk University? Well, I definitely now am more interested in ecosystem-based management. I'm just listening to you talk, Amy, about ocean planning and whatnot. I'm definitely very interested. And maybe for grad school, I'll think about it. <laughs> so it was a great experience. Yeah, and, and um, Elise, do you want to say anything about your future now that you've had the experience? <laughs> your plan, Elise. <laughs> no, not <laughs> um, I think it definitely showed me that I still have a lot to learn in terms of the global perspective on climate change and the environmental movement because every country is at such a different place and um, one policy is not going to work everywhere and there are a lot of other factors we need to consider when um, talking about um, climate change and helping the environment, but it definitely 
um, validated my interest in the nexus between economics and environmental science yes. and how we can use economics as a tool to kind of motivate um, better environmental policies. So, Well said. Well said. <laughs> one, thing, one thing we learned was that um, when we said think globally, act locally, was that we often would be locally stupid because we're only thinking globally. So as you said, it's very important to listen and learn the local situation before impacting policy. And that's what we found with the people in their yards was that what we thought would be their primary concerns weren't, and what were, we thought common sense, like leaving the glass clippings, was the aha moment because we listened to the local people and learned something. And, of course, Amy, thank you. Amy Bushman, thank you for your work on ocean planning. Well, thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun talking to you today. <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and for all of you listening, thanks for listening to us. Please take care of yourselves first and then take care of the planet. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.